None of the content on this or any episode of the Kratom Science Podcast, Kratom Science Journal Club, or on any page of KratomScience.com is intended, nor should it be considered medical claims or medical advice. This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com. Your source for all things Kratom. Dr. Kirsten Smith from NIDA returns to talk about her research since we last spoke in 2021 on Kratom dependence, consumer characteristics, a study on Reddit posts, the limitations of case reports, a Kratom guide for healthcare providers, and a new nationwide assessment you can participate in as a Kratom consumer. I wanted to talk about the ecological momentary assessment study with product assay first. It'll be a new survey followed by some uh, more comprehensive study. So what what is that anyway, uh, ecological momentary assessment? Yeah, so it's a mouthful and I should... I should warn everyone, since I have their attention for a moment, that this should not be considered another survey. So mm-hmm. there is a survey component, and you know the reason for that is because we need to get the kind of information that can only be got on a survey. So, like, tell us about you know when you f- first started using kratom, and you know this more detailed history, demographics, just stuff that people are kind of used to seeing on a survey, and it takes probably an hour and a half to complete. That's all fine and well, but that's kind of just like the tip of the iceberg to what is a ultimately about two and a half week long study. And what's going to happen is that once all of the materials are approved, which should be soon, which just in the next couple of weeks, we're going to start recruiting people. So it's a national study that NIDA Intramural Research Program is doing and it's enrolling regular kratom using adults in the United States. And I, I can't give like more than that away because otherwise like people could like game the system and say, oh, I meet eligibility criteria when I don't. But that's the gist of it. So if you are a regular kratom using person in the United States and you're an adult, you can take our screening questionnaire online. It takes like not probably five minutes real short. And if you're eligible, then you're prompted to complete kind of like this informed consent quiz. Because it's a two-week-long study, we want people to understand fully what they're getting involved with. We talk about the ecological momentary assessment more, which I'll give everyone a brief nutshell version of right now. And then once people say, okay, I think I can do this. I think I want to do it. Um, It is compensated you know, we can't pay like a tremendous amount because we only have so much money, but we do try to compensate people for their time. And then, you know, people we hope will do it out of the spirit of wanting to advance the science on Kratom. So once people decide that they want to do it, they're interested, they think that it's not going to be this horrible time commitment that they can't really follow through on. Then we, you know, give them the, the survey. After they do the survey, they have two days to download our study app. And it's a secure app. You don't even have to put any identifying information in there. And once that app is on your smartphone, then instead of asking a, you know, a long survey like we do at the beginning and like has been done with a lot of Kratom studies in the United States so far, what we do is called momentary sampling. And so what we do is we hit people up at different times of day. Two of the times of day are set kind of like a diary, an electronic diary is what we call it. So there's the beginning of day and the end of day. And that appears for about an hour and a half 
around whatever it is your bedtime and wake time is. So if you tell me that you get up at 6.30 every day, then we we make that beginning of day available for about an hour and a half for two hours um, right before and after you wake. And you just answer like eight, eight questions. And at the end of the day, same thing around your bedtime, you answer six to 10 questions. I forget exactly how many we ask at each time. And then in the middle, during your waking hours, as you're going about your normal life, we do what's called random prompts. So we'll give you a little notification, kind of like a text message, and you have about a half an hour to respond to it. And it's very short. It's not supposed to be this big burden, you know, because if it was a huge burden, people would just say, you know, I'm not doing it. And we ask you, how are you feeling? Are you in pain? What's your anxiety level? When's the last time you took Kratom? And then in addition to that, we have what are called the jargon is event contingent prompts. But really what that is, is anytime you use Kratom, you just report it into the little app and just, you say, well, you know, how much did you take? Uh, was it powder? Was it in capsule form? Was it toss and wash? Was it an extract? How much did you take? And then we ask, what was your motivation for using? Because you and your audience know this better than, than anyone else. You know, the reasons that people take Kratom are varied, right? Like, so someone could have five big overarching reasons for taking Kratom in general. Like in general, I take it for pain because I want to relax. I want to help, you know, I want to help my sleep, stuff like that. But it could be, you know, or anxiety, but it could be that on one day your pain level is really high or your anxiety level is really high. And so you might use more Kratom or on another day it's less and you use less. So there's no like wrong answer or anything. You just kind of like let us know what's going on. And you do this for two weeks. And at the very end of that two-week reporting period with the smartphone app, after that, we ask that you, well, I should say kind of at the midway point, we ask that you send in a small sample of the Kratom product that you're taking most often. And we provide all the shipping materials. No one has to pay for anything. Nobody's name is on anything. We put our return address so that no one will know that like John Doe in Tupelo, Mississippi, well, Mississippi is not a good example, but um, you know, any, anywhere, um, New York City, doesn't yeah. matter where, that there's nothing identifying about you on there. So we are very, 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 very serious about privacy, confidentiality, using your data only for scientific purposes. And that's really the gist of the study, but it's going to be exciting because we'll be able to characterize the alkaloid content of the Kratom products that people send us. And so we can hopefully see, you know, how much metrogenine is in uh, this product and maybe, to, you know, maybe that it's going to be very crude, but maybe we can correlate that with uh, their self-report during the time they were using this product and see that, oh, this product with higher levels of metrogenine actually ended up being more potent for them in terms of subjective self-report. And that's something we're really excited about doing. So that is the the very short, short version of the study. And when we have our landing page up, people can go to the NIDA Kratom study landing page and there'll be a little button, click to see if you qualify. Believe me, I'm going to pester you to remind, to tell people about it as soon as it's live. Oh, I definitely and, will. And tweet about it because we're really, really excited. We're kind of nervous because no one's no one's done a national Kratom study that isn't a survey before. So we were kind of freaked out <laughs> and we're excited, but we're like, what's going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is really big. In terms of regular users, do you qualify? I know one of the studies I was looking at, it was like four or more times a week that you use Kratom. Is that the qualification? 
So that's one thing I won't tell people because okay. if I do, so I'm not saying you or any of your listeners would do this, but some people would be like, eh, I'm really close to this. I'll just say that I use this amount per week and get in the study. So that's the one thing I won't say. We'll just ask that people when they do the screening that they report accurately, you know, how many times per week do they like, or how many days per week do they use? We have to keep that part secret. And is there a component? Cause this is the last thing we talked about on the last podcast. This, you guys were in the planning stages, but is there like a component where their participants give like blood samples or, or yeah. uh, urine samples to, to see like medically how they're doing? For a very special select few, we are going to be doing a local in-person component. And so likely this will be people who live in, we're located in, in Baltimore City. That's where the NIDA um, IRP um, labs are. And so if you live in or around that area and you, you know, see that you're, you know, you qualify for the study, then what our, our group will do is reach out to you and say, Hey, we noticed that you live kind of in the area. And of course people are welcome to travel to come uh, do that in-person component, but we don't expect people to, to travel for the study because that would be a burden on them and we, we can't pay for it necessarily. So if you're in the area and you qualify, of course, for the study, you could be invited to do the in-person component. So if you're eligible for that, it means you will have completed all of the stuff I already talked about, but then you'd come in for a study session day. And so that study session day would actually involve um, taking your Kratom product and then being observed by nurses or research nurses and study team, and then doing a whole lot of questions. So um, not survey questions, but more um, like real time, like psychomotor assessment, how you feel basically. So the subjective feelings that you're having, the effects you um, are receiving, and then we'll take a blood sample, urine sample, and another sample of the Kratom product that the person has taken there. So all of those will be analyzed. We can't do, unfortunately, because this is like a baby, baby, baby starting point, this is not going to be a PK, uh, like a, a pharmacokinetic study of the scale that I hope to do very shortly after this, but it is a starting point for just seeing you know, what metabolites show up in urine and what alkaloids we, uh, can be detected in plasma and then, of course, in the Kratom product. So yeah, there will be that component and there will actually be a driving simulation component too that we were able to hustle up. So it's really? going to be a full, full day. Yeah. And then That's a, cool. A, yeah, it's going to, it's really neat. And then a qualitative interview at the end, because something that, you know, is really frustrating to me is that, you know, I'm coding Reddit data again for the second Reddit paper. And some of the stories that people tell, you know, they don't make it to the scientific literature and therefore I know they exist, but we can't capture them in depth. And so for the 10 people that come in tonight to, to do the in-person component, I'm going to sit down and personally interview them and get what's called just a narrative case history and let them tell their story of how they started using Kratom and how it changed over time or if it changed over time and write it up as a case report series because we, and we can talk about this later, we have a lot of clinical case reports, but they're fairly problematic in how they yeah. report information. So 
I mean, you said it was like a baby study, but this is like the first time anything of its kind has gone on, right? I mean, most of them have just been surveys and and just like looking over uh, online data. I'm excited to see this, and and I hope people consider participating in it. I know uh, NIDA just recently updated their Kratom page, which uh, they tweeted out yesterday, and I saw, so I think everybody should look at that, and I think it's like... Uh, pretty good data and it's and it's good to see okay so what about this case report it's a systematic review a lot of the case reports and i was actually talking about it with my last guest morgan godvin who's a, a writer who was uh incarcerated uh she was a former heron user and she was incarcerated and um uh, she recently wrote an article about her kratom use um and she was talking about how she did her own research about kratom and she was looking at case reports what she said is you don't go into a doctor a doctor's office or the ER and say, oh, well, that Kratom just cut my pain in half because why would you do that? Uh, You're going to go to the doctor to say uh, something's wrong. Um, Is that part of maybe what's wrong with some of the case reports? I'll answer this in two ways. And the first way to say, or the first thing I'll say is that the case reports just by their nature They skew towards extreme and more negative cases because that's kind of what gets published. And so some of the online surveys, I would say probably skew a little positive just because, you know, it's people who are mostly regularly using. And if they're regularly using, they probably don't hate Kratom. Um, So they might skew positive. And that's what we call self-selection bias. And it's just something you got to own with the case reports there is a tendency if you're a physician or just a clinician of any kind, you're not going to write up a boring case report or, well, the patient presented and had you know reported creating use and nothing was going on. That's not going to be published. So there's absolutely no way of knowing how many um, adaptive creative use, you know, case, you know, case reports could have been written, but weren't. So just from the beginning, the way the system of publishing works is going to already be a little bit wonky in terms of more extreme things being written up and then more likely to be published. But beyond that, I think what what we're seeing in doing what's called a systematic review, which is very rigorous. There's a protocol for how you review all of these different case reports. So we're not just sitting there, you know, with with no, you know, aimlessly reading them and thinking, eh, that's okay. No, it's like there's a checklist of how we even include them. And when that comes out, um, I'll send it to you. But what we're seeing is that oftentimes clinicians are not accurately assess well, they're not assessing um, or diagnosing in any sort of systematic way. A really, really good example of this is when you see um, like Kratom addiction or Kratom abuse or Kratom misuse or even Kratom use disorder being used, but there's no indication that any diagnostic criteria were applied in the assessment. And so there's there are terms that are actual clinical terms that are not being used accurately, or if there was some sort of assessment and diagnostic process that was used, they, authors are not reporting it. So that's a really big one for me that, that kind of irritates me. But I think the other issue is just dosing and the variability of Kratom. So a lot of a lot of these case reports are written by people who don't necessarily know what Kratom is, or they encounter a patient using Kratom and they Google it. And who knows what they're going to find when they Mm. Google it. And then 
with not a lot of understanding about it, will then write up a case report with very little knowledge about it and then fail to include a lot of relevant or important information or not ask the questions that we need to draw any meaningful conclusions from. So for instance, dosing, but you know, how much were you dosing per day and of what specific type of kratom? So you can say grams per day, but grams of what? What I would also say is, yeah. is problematic are just dose amounts being reported that exceed what we would believe to be possible. And I say that with full awareness of people dosing in high, high end cases of over 90 grams per day, um, or what could be converted to that if they're using an extract. But mm-hmm. um, so we're just missing information. And to your other part of your question, what we did ask on a survey recently, which the findings will be coming out literally within like a week or two, that it's, it's been accepted it's just not quite out yet. And we ask people, are you, you know, did you try Kratom because of barriers accessing adequate treatment for mental health, for substance use disorder, for pain, for general health? And we ask people how comfortable they'd be. And interestingly enough, a little over, so over half of the sample said that they would either be comfortable reporting it to a health healthcare professional, or they really wouldn't think about it too much one way or another. Now it wasn't everybody, but it was, it was over 50%, which I was surprised by. Yeah. However, oh, well, yeah, but these treatment barriers were listed as very specific reasons for trying Kratom. Yeah. I wanted to talk about that too, but more on, on the case reports, it's like, and by the way, I want them to report if somebody had a bad reaction to it, but uh, to, I was doing one specifically on uh, liver toxicity, and I'm looking at every single case report, and every single one, it's like the person might have also had fatty liver disease, not known about it. That's something that presents without symptoms. There was one that we looked at on the Journal Club that was it was called Kratom-induced psychosis. It's like they're kind of quick to put Kratom in the title, when, and this, this guy who had a psych, psychotic episode was awake for a week because he quit all other drugs including hormones and pills that would if you quit might give you insomnia on your own or or cause all kinds of issues and he happened to have been taking not that much kratom i don't think um although like you said there's a difference between extracts and plain leaf kratom do you think there's do you think there's like a a motivation to put kratom in the title because it's a new and unknown thing and that helps with publishing or is that something you'd even care to speak about or so i can't i won't speak to any specific motivation paper or author because (laughs) you know who who knows what's in people's um hearts and and minds and intentions yeah yeah and i'd like to give extend the principle of charity to most people most of the time that said i think any um so one thing that is across the board understood is that case reports and i was talking with dr stephanie weiss our medical doctor um who's also a toxicologist and addiction um md as well who is very familiar with kratom and has treated patients that have, um, you know, become dependent on Kratom. And we were talking about like, you know, the case reports, they're one of the weakest forms of evidence, right? Because the person, A, there's such little information and, and B, we cannot even begin to ascribe causality when there are so many factors, let alone so many unknown factors. So anytime that you see anybody asserting causality, whether it's a case report or anything else, 
um, it's it's very, very, very difficult to to prove that A is causing B. And usually even when A is causing B, there's about 20 other things also influencing how A causes B. So it's, it's just to be um, treated as one kind of information potentially. And again, I'm like you, I want to see more case reports. I was at a conference, uh, American Society of Addiction Medicine, and we spoke to a a room full of 90 clinicians, all of whom had interacted with patients who had some Kratom use or Kratom withdrawal or Kratom dependence. And I told them, write up case reports, but please do it in the most accurate and specific way possible because we really have a dearth of good case reports. And I, I would say that in some cases, people probably are publishing with any, with any hot topic or quasi hot topic there's a motivation to to publish because it might be easy but um Mm -hmm. that's not good (laughs) (laughs) no one should do that i want to find out because then i can take this to my podcast and say hey everybody if uh you haven't slept in a week maybe you shouldn't do kratom or you know it's kind of like safety things I really wish I, I could, you know, say, look, here's where you're going to get into trouble with uh, how much Kratom you're taking every day or or just like a guideline. Because I just kind of think it's the responsibility of the side that wants to keep Kratom legal to be honest about the safety issues. It, it would be great if people would, everybody would be comfortable about talking to their doctor. And so that that gets into the other thing that was published that I was pretty excited about, which was the guide for healthcare providers, uh, you and uh, Mark Swagger and uh, a few others. So why did you decide to do this? And because I know I w- I, I've been telling people, yeah, tell your doctor because they should know that you're healthy and do a kratom but then I, I was in an argument with a guy on reddit and he said you know that's a bad idea because if somebody has a past history of drug re- use that your doctor is gonna he's afraid they would put him on some list uh, of somebody who uses drugs and maybe they won't be able to get pain medication um just what were your reasons for putting that together yeah i mean mark was the one who spearheaded that and he mm-hmm. um mark swagger and he and all of us, of course, first and foremost, want to have clinicians, if they are to go into Google Scholar or, you know, just Google Kratom, have some alternative other than WebMD or the Mayo Clinic. Beyond that, um, of just raising awareness, I think there's the hope that we have that, and again, I have a clinical background, so I was actually initially going to to go provide substance use disorder treatment to, to people. That was what I thought I was going to do in life. And clearly it, things have changed quite a lot, but I am trained to assess people with a DSM-5 and diagnose people. And what I, I know to be true, both on the giving and receiving end of treatment, whether it's substance use disorder treatment, psychiatric health, physical health, a lot of the patient provider dynamics are asymmetrical. So you have this person with a lot of knowledge and authority and quite frankly, a lot of power over you as a patient. And what really should be happening is this, what is called evidence-based practice or evidence-based medicine. And it's this process, right? And as part of that process, the the physician or the um, clinician is supposed to not only look at the available evidence for any sort of intervention or therapy or treatment, or clinical decision-making, but also to take into account the patient's preferences, 
values, desires, perspective, point of view. And so it's really, I think, challenging in America, which has a very difficult system to interact with anyway for healthcare, assuming you can get healthcare um, Mm -hmm. and treatment. It's hard even for patients who are very privileged and able or feel as though they're able to advocate for themselves and who feel empowered enough to maybe push back, not in a mean way, but just in a, you know, advocating for your own clinical needs, because at the end of the day, you know, your body and your health and your everyday life better than the doctor does on some level. Now, I'm not saying like, you know, how like a cancer is spreading, you know, per se, but you know how you feel and you know, more or less what you want your quality of life to look like. And that does need to be communicated to and received by the clinician. So we, at the end of the paper wrote these tips for, you know, if you're a clinician, here's a, here's who, who might be more likely to be using Kratom because we know a lot of the factors of like comorbidities or chronic pain or fatigue. I mean, all these different things, but even among healthy people, you know, who use it for recreation, that's also possible, but approach the person in a non-judgmental way, in a non-stigmatizing way. When you ask about Kratom use, include it as part of a standard assessment. Don't, you know, make it this special, unique thing, but do what you should be doing, I would say anyway, which is to ask about any sort of supplement, over-the-counter, herbal, illicit, licit, every, you know, the entire package. So it's not just Kratom, it's Kratom plus all the other things a person could be taking and don't single it out as just this one thing, but do mention it because your earlier point, I'm not sure if I were taking Kratom, whether I would tell my doctor about it for the reasons that your interlocutor um, said, but also I, I would want people to tell their clinic. It's, it's, it's this horrible feeling to have because I would never say, Oh, don't, you know, withhold information from a, from a clinician. But at the same time, I do. I mean, we talked about this on the show last time and it's again, not a secret. I have a history of heroin, IV heroin use. And literally just this past week, I wrote a piece from the perspective of a patient with a drug use history to physicians about how I would wish that they would interact with people like myself. And I am in a very decent position from having been trained to be where I am now that I can interact with a healthcare provider in a fairly savvy way, but the average person is not equipped to exercise their autonomy and advocate for themselves in a way that I think might be needed. And so it's, it is a very, 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 very unfortunate space to be in where I wouldn't know. I don't, I don't think that we could recommend any, I'm specifically not recommending anything one way or another because it's up yeah. to everyone individually on a case by case basis. Cause if your doctor's like a really good human and really listens to you and, and wants to understand then Yes. I mean, why wouldn't you tell them? But once it's in your medical chart, it's in your medical chart. And that is a decision that every every person has to make um, for themselves. But I would say if, if you're experiencing health problems, you know, you should probably be as forthcoming as you as you can with your yeah, doctor. Yeah, definitely. In that situation, definitely. So I talked to you last summer and it looks like a lot of the research is is showing kind of what people are reporting online. I mean, we've even done, it wasn't a survey. It was just, I just collected all our comments and hashtagged them and based on a first person user experience. 
are you finding out anything new or any like new nuances? We see that people use Kratom for either chronic pain, uh, for uh, self-treating opioid withdrawal, or for anxiety, depression. Is there any data that's coming out that either contradicts that or adds anything different to it as, as you find out more and more? So nothing that contradicts it. I think what yeah. we're seeing is that, um, and and the name of the, well, the name might have changed. I, th- I think the editors wanted a different name than I gave it. But the motivations paper that's coming out, I mean, we found over 40 unique motivations for using Kratom. And a lot of them fell within the self-treatment narrative is what I call it. Yeah. Because that self-treatment narrative has really defined um, Kratom use in the United States since Ed Boyer, you know, first wrote up a Kratom paper in 2007. Uh, I'm not saying Kratom was not used in the United States before then, because people have yelled at me when I've said that. Um, I'm just saying that like (laughs) when we first started to have it on our radar between then and now, it's been defined largely by that. But a lot of people, I think what we're seeing more is the increase in recreational use, the increase in use for the nootropics, I always used to pronounce it nootropics. Then David Epstein, my, my mentor was like, that's not how it's pronounced. And I'm like, oh, I feel like an idiot. So um, no, but but people call it like newts or, you know, like, but. We don't know how to like, pronounce anything in the creative world. I, I don't either. I mean, I I mean the Kratom have no idea world. How to pronounce it. Oh, I still can't say Kratom or Kratom. I'm horrible. But so, you know, there's like this subgroup of people who are really into nootropics or you know, like psychedelics and they're much more, I don't want to call them the psychonauts proper, but they're Mm -hmm. in in the Venn diagram, they overlap with that a bit, but, you know, research chemicals, stuff like that. So there's a, there's more, I think, use for that, but it's, it's broader than that. Right. So it's this cognitive enhancing and also energy enhancing uh, motivation. And this, this goes to people who don't necessarily have other, specified that we know of reasons for using, but it falls into more of the recreational or energy enhancing, cognitive enhancing. I'm taking it for that combo of stimulatory slash analgesics. It, it's it's just uncanny how people describe it, even when we don't ask about it. But you know, it's like this kind of combination of just feeling good and feeling more alert, um, but also using it for relaxation as well. So mm-hmm. I think that this entire range of use that's I would say falls under the umbrella of of recreation and also just general quality of life use. And when I say that, I mean use that's more geared geared around things like coffee. Almost like people are talking about it, like how I talk about when I drink coffee or alcohol. I'm not equating kratom to coffee or alcohol, although some people do, or opioids as some people do. I'm not saying from a pharmacological standpoint. However, I am saying from a subjective and or intention to use standpoint, they're kind of approaching it in this more, not pragmatic, but very specific. I use it when I do this, or I use it before I do this, but it's not for self-treatment. And, you know, but then again, we do see things like just greater specificity of the reasons for use, like IBS or chronic fatigue syndrome and things that are very, very, very specific in addition to just, I use it to enhance the quality of my life. And I think I said this last time, because maybe I'd already looked at the data a little bit, but everyone that we uh, asked on the survey to check off a list of you know what motivations they had, 
everybody but one person checked off multiple motivations. That makes sense to me because most people don't use one thing for just one reason. Um, it's, it's totally possible. And I'm sure there are people who do, but I think people probably have like their primary motivation. And then, and that's what we're going to find out with this next uh, study is, you know, proximal real time momentary motivations. But then also we ask at the end of the day, you know, what is your number one reason that you use today? And it was probably going to be similar across days, but maybe not for everyone. So that's something we hope to find out more and to see how dynamic that is. I had a lot of questions about this uh, assessment of creating use disorder. It was uh, published in February, and I always refer to NIDA's definition of uh, addiction versus dependence. But what would you say, like, the difference would be between kratom dependence and kratom use disorder? Yes, that's a great question. And, you know, we don't even have to talk about kratom specifically. This could apply to any substance. So the difference between there's two ways to look at this. There's some people define addiction proper as a chronic disease or some or something like this. But so there's addiction independence in this really crude, broad way of just saying, you know, someone's addicted to something and they have usually what is associated with that is continued use despite adverse consequences and usually continued use uh, despite a desire to stop. So that's that's a very rough definition of what most people would say, okay, that's addiction. People are using despite continued adverse consequences and a desire to stop um, in some cases. And dependence um, means that someone has a, a physio- typically physiologically, you know, they're dependent um, defined by tolerance. So needing more and more of the substance to achieve the same or the desired effect and withdraw, meaning that if you don't clearly we know what it is. We all know what was wrong, but it's just, if you don't use it, you will start to feel uh, symptoms specific to that drug class that are associated with that specific kind of withdrawal. So the, the very short version of defining what dependence is, is tolerance and withdrawal. And a lot of people use tolerance, withdrawal, dependence interchangeably, but they're not the same thing. And dependence really is when you take tolerance and withdrawal and smush them together, that's that's the definition. And um, as far as substance use disorder, that is a that's technically a separate thing. So that is what is defined by the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the American Psychiatric Association's mm-hmm. um, public. It's you know like the Bible of the APA. Yeah. Most people know what that is, and it's not the same thing as as other assessments. So there's multiple other assessments floating around for how to diagnose problematic substance use. This is one of the main ones, but it's not the only one. There's a long history with other versions of the DSM, but this version built into it, there are withdrawal and tolerance um, elements as far as the symptoms go, but then there are these other symptoms that are characteristic of psychosocial impairments or impairments in occupational functioning or use when it is risky and is causing problems, unsuccessful quit attempts, craving. So there's actually 11, when you parse it out, there's like actually technically 13 different items on this checklist. And so if you're going to assess someone as having a substance use disorder, they would need to meet two to three to have mild, four to five for moderate, and then five or more is severe. You're defined as in remission if you have a 12-month period in which none of these are manifesting or you don't meet 
diagnostic criteria. Okay. So that is the checklist we used in our survey to assess. And it's also mm-hmm. what Algarcia Romero used in his survey. Of the people who were um, classified as kratom use disorder, severity was 14% mild, 7, 7% moderate, and 85 severe. I'll just read the quote. Uh, eight, 8.5% of respondents reported having repeatedly used kratom in situations where it was physically hazardous. 10% endorsed the symptom, gave up or reduced some important social, occupational, recreational activities. Uh, 9.3% reported that kratom use repeatedly interfere with my major work school at home you're just talking about that many people who use kratom like me and my wife were very mild users and even people who are daily users like cannot believe that that's possible because of how mild kratom is but but i you see this you see this on uh, quitting kratom that people get into these situations um is it always people who are taking large amounts of it that run into the situation where the, or, the, or they're having like even psychological uh, effects of withdrawal i put it to every person who used to be addicted to opioids uh like is our kratom withdrawals the same thing and they always like pause and laugh or give me a funny response or be like no it's nothing compared to that but it, but it seems to be uh comparable to opioid withdrawals and and like um you know these severe cases yeah there's a lot there so this is the most inter- i mean this is among the most interesting things i'm thinking about these days and i've been looking at a lot of these quitting uh kratom reddit posts the last uh two weeks actually among other subreddit posts but between anecdotes case reports our own survey data other people's survey data but our own in particular with um with respect to kratom use disorder and then social media da- data i think the short takeaway, and of course it's all preliminary, is that, and, and we see this with withdrawal too, not just substance, I mean, and of course withdrawal is part of uh, the criteria for substance use disorder, but you don't have to have it to meet criteria. But when we assess withdrawal separately, what we see both with respect to substance use disorder criteria being met, and then also with respect to withdrawal, usually what we're, it's moderate sometimes, but there is a dose effect you know, at least with withdrawal uh, relationships. So the more kratom you use for the longer, like more, the, the greater number of weeks on average is roughly associated with greater withdrawal symptom severity. So that relationship has been established very crudely because we don't have the statistical power. We had a very small sample, but nonetheless, we detected that relationship. And it's kind of like a no kidding. I mean, like we we would expect to find the more you take of something for longer to be associated with a greater severity of yeah. withdrawal symptoms, you know, for, for one day secession or more is how we um, phrased it in one of the questions. What we see, and because I do want to make sure to articulate this before I speak about the um, the dose and the withdrawal experiences that we've read about and coded, which is that for our substance, our kratom use disorder paper, when we looked at the, those individual symptoms, we see that the kratom use disorder was being driven more by withdrawal tolerance and less so by the psychosocial impairments. So even okay. though we don't want to minimize those. From a clinical standpoint, I'm going to treat someone differently as a clinician. They come in here and say that they are missing their rent because they're spending all of their money on Kratom and they can't go to work unless they take, you know, I mean, 
like if they're doing some really um, problematic or maladaptive behaviors in order to keep using Kratom, that's going to raise a lot of red flags for me than someone who's physically dependent on Kratom, but otherwise functioning in all of the normative psychosocial ways that we would expect most people to kind of function on a daily basis. So I think that takeaway is a kind of a big one. And though, you know, as far as uh, the dose, I think um, this gets back to something you said earlier about like, you wish you could have something to tell your audience or, or people, you know, who you interact with, Mm -hmm. what is like the one thing, you know, to watch out for with Kratom. And I think in a way it's an unanswerable question because of the variability of Kratom products and how you, I mean, you know, as, as well as I do, when we say Kratom, we could be talking about like 15 different things easily, like yeah. probably, you know, dozens at this point. And then there's variability with the leaves themselves, et cetera, et cetera. It's Everyone almost knows. like if, if we just discovered alcohol and we just call everything booze and don't differentiate exactly. between beer, wine, liquor. Yes. That's a very, that's a very good analogy. And so, so keeping that in mind, there's the additional complicating factor. So we don't know exactly what, a, people are using different kinds of Kratom, meaning we can't give any recommendations or strong conclusions because there's so much variability. But the one thing I think that is safe to say at this, well, there's two things that I think are fairly safe to say at this point. If you're using more and more and more of anything, in this case, Kratom, you are going to likely have some problems manifest as a result of that. If you're stable or just kind of fluctuating up and down or increasing a little bit, you know, who's to say, but the thing that we are seeing over and over again, and all of these quitting Kratom um, and other, other sources too, is that things start to go bad when two things happen. One, when the tolerance goes up and people don't manage it, but they just keep increasing their dose. So dose escalation, um, irrespective of product, but then adding onto that extract. So, I have to say, I am very concerned about the extracts that some people are using because it is for them. And again, this is this is like a, a, a fraction of a fraction of people. So I'm not um, I'm not saying this applies to everyone, but a lot of the stories are like, yeah, so on and so forth, powder tea, blah 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 blah. And then when I started using these extracts. And then you just see it go to hell in a handbasket, like really profoundly. And yeah. that's, again, not everybody, because some people are like, I treated myself to an extract on Friday and, you know, the rest of the time they use whatever. But it's the, the relationship between either potentiation methods at home, at home extractions, extract products being purchased, and then increased dose. That's where people are, are having problems. And the last thing I'll add is that it's really, really, um, we haven't written this paper yet and we're, we're actually thinking about how we're going to do it now. And we're, we invited Chris and Oliver on this one because I should, Christopher McCurdy and Oliver Grumman, because they are chemists. And we saw a lot of like this kind of at home, do it yourself science <laughs> this time around with Reddit, uh, because people specifically are trying to achieve these really potent highs with at home extractions and so they are doing that they are doing some people are not okay yeah 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 some people are i'm not saying most people most people aren't chemists i couldn't do that i mean i'm not good at (laughs) i'm not i'm not uh that kind of scientist chris could probably do it i can't do it and so but that's that's a, a minority of people but then we have another group of people who are just purchasing extracts 
and we see the problematic yeah. um, use. But here's here's the kicker, right? And this is what is very uh, challenging from a clinical standpoint, not just a research standpoint, which is that whatever substance a person comes to use, doesn't matter what it is, they're coming to that substance and that relationship with the substance with their entire history behind them, right? So their developmental history, their prior drug use history, their prior, their emotional state. So if someone has psychological problems before they ever use Kratom, well, how much do we, it goes back to the causality. How much can we say this particular mm-hmm. nest of, of problems is the manifest, is the result of Kratom use, or maybe they're taking too much Kratom because they had these problems to begin with. Maybe if they, and I'm, I'm not saying this in a judgmental way, I'm saying perhaps if they didn't have certain characteristics uh, that we know to be associated with problematic substance use, doesn't matter what substance, we know certain characteristics, they increase the odds of developing a substance use disorder. Maybe they have these characteristics prior to them developing a problematic relationship with Kratom. I have no idea because clearly we're not, we don't have that information. I mean, I would say Reddit data is no better than case report data in, in some way. There's more of it, there's more detail, but you still don't know the full story. And that's frustrating. Do you find that people like in those Reddit data where you can't ask specific questions, do you find that a lot of them are reporting that they had addiction when they really mean dependence and they're just kind of freaking out about the fact that they have tolerance of withdrawal? Is that kind of a factor and and kind of skewing it? And then I guess another question would be in your other report using the, uh, the Amazon, what was that? Uh, oh, mechanical chart. Yeah, using that, you were able to find people that had discontinued their kratom use, and so they want—they don't have as favorable a view of kratom. Are you continuing to look for those types of people? So, Amazon mechanical chart was used in identifying people who had lifetime who had ever used kratom, and then we recontacted mm-hmm. a portion of them for these smaller surveys—the ones that we've been talking about that are coming out. And the the takeaway was not that they had less favorable attitudes, but rather that because we didn't have like a AKA um, promoted, you know, regular Kratom users only survey that we had a more diverse sample. So we, what's interesting is that even though it was about 43% considered themselves to be regular current Kratom users, and most people had used Kratom regularly at one point in time, and some had discontinued use completely and some only used intermittently, but they weren't like this every day or every four or five days, you know, user, like they were mm-hmm. all over the place, which just was really great. But even with all that diversity, um, including people who had quit, there were still actually favorable attitudes. Like most yeah. people still thought it should be legal. Like even the people who didn't use it anymore, but who had once used it, you know, not everyone, I would say about a third of the sample thought that. Uh, Kratom had become problematic for them or was habit forming or addictive. So a third is not nothing, but you have as many, if not more people saying it's been medicinal, actually more people were saying it was medicinal or therapeutic or helpful for them in some way. So it was all over the place, meaning it shouldn't be surprising that people have different experiences and come away, Um, but it wasn't uniformly negative, even among people who had quit. So I think the quitting Kratom Reddit posts are also kind of, and I've read the other subreddits too, so it's not just that, but I think they do skew a little bit more negative. 
you know, when people write, they're not writing from this technical standpoint of, yeah. of a clinician. So what we do when we code is actually code. This means like tolerance, withdraw, and then professed addiction. Um, so if they themselves say, you know, I was, I was hooked or I was addicted to, or, um, you know, what either they perceived to be addiction or what is clearly being represented as you know, my life went to hell because of this. Like people were like yeah. saying like this insidious weed and like, or, or plant or like all this stuff. Like, so some people had very clear conceptualizations of addiction and other people talked about tolerance and withdrawal, but they didn't necessarily talk about addiction or they didn't even talk. And this is not just quitting creating. This is just on all of the subreddits. Like they would talk about tolerance and withdrawal, but not necessarily within the context of addiction. Yeah. So I think people can separate out Okay. Different experiences. I mean, it, it, on on Reddit and specifically, like, there's a lot of political motivations around kratom. Have you seen that some of the answers that you got in the Reddit data were like from bots or people maybe faking one way or the other, writing a bunch of fake posts about it's great or it's terrible? Because I, I I've talked to the bots of our kratom, the bots, uh, the <laughs> the mods of our kratom, and they said some of the rules that seem uh, a little overbearing, like you can't call kratom an opioid, came from a response to another person coming in and and trying to recruit people for what they suspected was a for-profit rehab this is all this is all like yeah you know but but they have like certain motivations for why they it's not just to make kratom look good it's just it's it's to uh keep out like other political but did you run into that in collecting that data at all we ran into um, pol- like so kratom advocacy, kratom policy talk, you mm-hmm. know things about like the World Health Organization. Were more of course that's a more recent thing that um, wasn't around a few years ago because who had all of their discussions on on what to do with kratom, and so mm-hmm. FDA World Health Organization came up, DA a little bit, and then just uh, state level things like the you know. Or, or or here, like, go advocate. So there was some very specific creative advocacy going on, more so than we saw yeah. last time we looked. But as far as how we sample, so we... Um, but what we, I meant was, we, like, fake posts uh, trying to make Kratom look be- good or bad. Uh, so we we cannot detect bots yeah. personally. We can only... I mean, we what we do remove are trolls, so there are clearly posts that are trolls. And we... Yeah. We basically don't code them and we just say this you know, X amount were uh, removed from the final sample because they were not legitimate posts. And so mm-hmm. we can identify those. Um, but any if a person is writing with a motivation um, and it's it's not evident, like we can't we can't necessarily know that. They, I mean, clearly, sometimes we know when people are like joking and stuff like that. But if someone is has a motivation, we can only code based on what we see. And unless we have reason to suspect that it is, I mean, everything's motivated by something. But yeah. there, there definitely seems to be this like back and forth between or the skepticism among people who aren't who haven't developed any problems with Kratom. Are the people who are describing these experiences sincere because it seems really really overblown i think some people are surprised at how 
problematic Kratom has become for some people. Mm-hmm. And they, there's been a little skepticism on that. It's like kind of meta discourse. <laughs> I mean, we can't detect a, a bot per se. This is from the associations of lifetime non-medical opioid meth and kratom use within the. Uh, this is from November, last November. Here, I'll just read the quote. Compared to those in the NMO only group, the NMO plus kratom group was more likely to report past year serious mental illness, suicidality, path month psychological distress. Uh, the NMO methamphetamine kratom group was more likely to report past year SMI, past month distress, uh, increased odds for drug inject opioid withdrawal i just wonder what that suggested about multi-drug use is there just a common sense answer that people in mental distress are trying different drugs to help them or on the other on the other side of the coin does uh, multi-drug use lead to mental distress the short answer is is both i mean that paper is kind of like frustrating and in hindsight i wish we had looked at alcohol instead of or i had added alcohol um, or looked or ran it with alcohol instead of methamphetamine because I've seen a lot more people reporting use for withdrawing from alcohol or replacing alcohol than meth. Most people that use substances are polysubstance users because yeah. even if you're people forget caffeine is a is a psychoactive drug, right? Like it's a psychoactive substance. So yeah. nicotine, caffeine, alcohol, all these different things. Most people are polysubstance users, and you know we. And at least, uh, so Justin Strickland and myself came, came by way of University of Kentucky and Jeff Rogers um, came from Arkansas. So we're all, we all came up here and we're like, why is nobody doing meth here? And like, because um, where we came from, like, <laughs> there was a lot of methamphetamine. There was a lot of cocaine use as well, but there was more meth. And here um, where we live, there's a lot more cocaine and less methamphetamine unless you like get it out into the sticks more. <laughs> and so we're used to this opioid methamphetamine uh, combination that appears among a lot of polysubstance users in some areas more than others. And we were interested to see in particular because you know, kratom can have stimulatory effects, right? Like people use it for fatigue and um, other reasons to kind of, you know, energy boosting um, and, and, you know, enhancing their physical performance and stuff like that. So we were kind of interested to see if there, how many people were using both non-medically prescribed opioids and methamphetamine uh, and kratom. And to answer your question, I mean, it's, it goes both ways. So people who are using multiple substances and, Oh man, someone on Twitter gave me like, I've only had two mean-ish comments directed like at me at Twitter. I've had a very lovely Twitter experience. No one's been uh, too mean to me on Twitter. But uh, one person was like, I don't, I forget what he, I'm assuming it was the he said um, <laughs> about the paper, but he's like, you could have found this with anything. And you know what? He's, he's not wrong. Like, I'm surprised you only got one so far. Got one mean comment about they thought I was like pro kratom. I'm like not pro or anti anything. When you put into a statistical model different variables, you're going to get a different output. So the the things will change when you add other drugs, and they're not going to be the exact. So it's it's disingenuous to say that if we substituted kratom with alcohol, it would come out exactly like it did. That's mm-hmm. not true. But the conclusions that we can draw from that is that people who have unmet mental health needs are using kratom and methamphetamine. And we don't know if it's because of the polydrug use that they have these other like mental health problems and increased risk of suicidality and things like that. 
um, if that's driving the mental health problems or if the mental health problems are driving the poly drug use. In reality, what we often see without fail is that it's a circle. It's like this big feedback loop where if you're doing enough drugs and you have some mental health problems, um, it's going to be this kind of cycle or it's going to be a self-feeding, self-perpetuating, you know, one thing's exacerbating another. So I, I, I do think that at least with non-medical opioid use and Kratom, what we know for sure with those two are that people, not everybody, but many people are using them to non-medically self-treat a variety of things, including mental health conditions and um, opioid use disorder symptoms. Insofar as we know that to be the case, we can infer that maybe their unmet needs do have a relationship with the Kratom use and the non-medical opioid use. Methamphetamine, maybe, maybe, maybe not. I mean, there are people who don't get treatment for ADHD or fatigue. Like, like there are people with chronic fatigue disorder who don't get amphetamine medications prescribed to them because they have a history of substance use disorder. So mm. there's more work to be done. And Darshan Singh, he found, you, you briefly mentioned this in our email correspondence about what Darshan found in, in Malaysia, which is that there were people with heroin and amphetamine uh, use disorders or a history of problematic amphetamine and heroin use who were using Kratom to kind of self-treat both. And at the end, and someone asked me this the other day, because they are more interested in the stimulant effects of Kratom. And I said, we know that some people use it as like a stimulant substitute in some ways, and some people are using it as a study drug. Um, yeah, I have people reporting that now as well, but we don't know if people are using Kratom as a replacement, if they're poly drug users, if they're using it for a replacement for just one thing or many things. My feeling is that probably if they use a lot of things and they're trying not to use those things, Kratom might be this kind of catch-all that just makes them feel less bad. Yeah. And they're taking it to just feel better in general. And what have you found about kratom and uh, cessation from uh, alcohol use? It seemed like there was a good percentage of that in some of the surveys. So we saw it in this last round of kratom Reddit coding. It came up more than I thought it would, and it came up. I don't have anything in front of me, and we've only started to like actually do the like quantitative analyses mm -hmm. now, but. It came up more than I thought it would, and certainly more than stimulants, but let me look here because I have... So it's not a majority of people, but so as a long-term substitute or replacement for alcohol, it was only 7.8% of the sample that said that they use Kratom as a long-term substitute or replacement for alcohol. But when they rated that on a scale of effectiveness with zero being completely ineffectual and 100 being extremely effective... They rated it on average as 75.8, which is what I would consider to be moderately effective. Yeah. Um, fairly highly. I mean, because some of these effectiveness ratings were not that high. And then to relieve alcohol withdrawal symptoms, only 6.2% reported that, but the yeah. um, effectiveness rate was 72.1%. So for a short-term replacement for alcohol, so there were more people who um, reported that. So 186 percent of respondents reported using Kratom as a short-term substitute or replacement for alcohol, yeah. which sounds kind of like what you were doing. Mm. And then with that, though, they actually rated it somewhat less effective at 66.3% on average, like so 66 out of 100. So I, I would say uh, that's a judgment call is, you know, I wouldn't say it was moderately effective, but it was somewhat effective. Um, but it's interesting that the longer term was rated as more effective. I kind of thought it would be the opposite. 
Yeah, it's not it's not the same thing, and it, I don't even think it's the same uh, collection of brain receptors uh, based on what they found so far. Because I guess alcohol is more GABA, and uh, yeah. And but the whole thing with the opioid receptors, um, you know, whether or not kratom is a gateway drug into heroin, is that occurring or is it possible like a gateway drug into opioids like you, you you have oh wow I have these opioid effects with this kratom they're mild maybe uh, real opioids would be better is, is that occurring yeah so it's something that we have gotten uh, some reviewers earlier on when it was probably in like 2018 someone was yeah. like well how do you know that people are using so first of all we know because people have literally said I'm using kratom to get off of heroin so yes. In those cases, I think it's pretty crass to say we should just not believe that people did heroin first and are using Kratom after that. That seems like a no-brainer situation, but in terms of overall, right? So we really, we have no way of knowing if there's a person out there right now using Kratom for the, and, and they've never used anything that acts on opioid receptors. So that's to say they're opioid naive. So if there's an opioid naive person out there trying Kratom, it is entirely possible. I have no, I I don't have that information because I clearly don't know everything that's happening in the world, unfortunately. But I do think that there's two things. One, at least right now, um, most people using Kratom skew a little bit older And what we Mm -hmm. looked at on this last survey was what we asked people, name every drug you've ever done in your whole life. What age did you do it? Have you done it in the last year? Have you done it in the last month? And so with Kratom, the average uh, age of use initiation was about 30 years old. It was 29.9. To give you some perspective, the average age for alcohol, nicotine, um, uh, cannabis was around 15, 16 years old on average. Yeah, now, that's what we me. see, is, yeah. <laughs> so what we see is Kratom looks a lot more like CBD and uh, electronic cigarettes, m- like medical cannabis, and yeah. then uh, buprenorphine. So what do all these things have in co- common? The, these things were not around forever. Like when I was younger, I didn't do buprenorphine or even have access to it. Like when I needed it, probably because. It was not around yet. They all sound now it's like been, more yeah. boring versions of the stuff you use when you're younger. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, and but they're new, right? And like so what, nicotine what patch think, versus a cigarette, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so what I do think is going to, what's going to happen is that as CBD, as, you know, and e-cigarettes are a great example of like the age of use initiation, like going down. Um, so like younger people are starting because they've been around longer now. So um I think as Kratom is around longer, I I would predict that that honestly, you know, this because it would be kind of strange if this were true for like every drug except Kratom. So or substance except Kratom. I think that the longer anything is available and around, the average age of use initiation for any group, and again, we're talking about on average for mm-hmm. a, a large group. Um, is going to be dragged down because it will just be around for younger people to to try, whereas it wasn't around. So, like, who was using kratom first? Older people, not like all, not like old old people necessarily, but like you know, you know, on average, older people. And so now that, especially if it's being used for recreation more as opposed to just self treatment, I think we will see the average age come down. Now, with respect to the chicken and egg part of like, well, is that going to mean that it's a gateway drug for heroin? I don't know. I th- and, and I think that time has proven 
that just because someone uses drug A or substance A does not mean that they will use substance B. Yeah. Um, I think it's a highly, highly individualized thing. There are many people who are prescribed prescription opioids who then got on heroin. And there are many people who are prescribed as opioids who have never, ever seen heroin. Yeah. And so it's it's going to be a very, very mixed case. And here, you know, we saw that basically every single opioid was initiated at a younger age on average than Kratom was, meaning that it, it's possible. I mean, I could look at each case individually. It's possible that like one person used Kratom before they used heroin, but on average, that is not what we're seeing. Now, that doesn't mean it'll always be the case, but it, it kind of goes back to, I think, some of what we talked about last time, which are use intentions. If you're looking for a heroin experience or what is now going to be a fentanyl heroin experience, that is not the same thing as a craving experience. And honestly, yeah. fentanyl is way cheaper. If people are looking for that, they can probably find it much cheaper than they can find Kratom. Uh, we're not advertising it. <laughs> no, 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 no. And I also want to, I also want to say something ser- in all, like yeah, in all seriousness that, that came up uh, and this, cause this really does frustrate, like this frustrates me, which is when people, and again, it's not most people, but a lot of people on Reddit who've started to use Kratom and then had a bad experience with it and have gone to like quit Kratom eventually or yeah. attempted to quit. They are really, really pissed off, understandably so, because when they started to use Kratom and like part of this is, I'm not saying it's on them, but it kind of is like, they didn't do their homework. They didn't research it thoroughly, but at the same time, they believed the person or the vendor or the, the dude at the gas station who was like, oh, it's like coffee, but it's not coffee. Yeah. Like that's really not good. Like that's not an accurate representation of what you're advertising and what is actually pharmacologically, if there's metragine yeah. in the product going to happen. And like, so I do think that it's incumbent upon consumers to really understand like with anything what it is they are choosing to put in their body or not put in their body but when people are like after the fact finding out oh well this acts on opioid receptors in addition to many 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 you know serotonin dopamine adrenergic it acts on many receptors yeah the industry has to do something about because it's not a good look for them and i can't do anything about it because i'm it's not my job I got a last question here. Um, okay. It was from the discussion from the Reddit study, um, but it says, for some, Kratom was, life, was life-saving, and for others, it was ruinous, or yet another substance to which they had become beholden. Like other findings, the provisional takeaway is that it's premature to laud Kratom as a cure-all, and equally premature to demonize it as a dangerous substance with risks that outweigh benefits. So my question is, does it have to be one or the other? And can't we just look at this as a complex thing rather than what you're just talking about, vendors overselling it or maybe like uh, somebody who profits from rehabilitation to be uh, demonizing it? I'll I'll just say yes to the the first part of that, which is it is – infinitely complex pharmacologically we only are there's 50 alkaloids that we know about we are in the infancy of understanding it and right now we have some preclinical work and we have the early stages of self-report work 
And that's it. I mean, there's, there, we have very, from a scientific standpoint, very little information. And so we have to default to what is the obvious truth, which is that it is complex as a plant and the mechanisms of action of any one or multiple alkaloids are going to be complex, but then also people are complex, right? And everyone's situation with any substance, kratom, anything else is going to be unique to that person. That's not to say we can't say a few broad takeaways. Like I said earlier, Mm -hmm. if you're using a high amount of kratom every day for a year, and then you stop, you're going to probably experience some kind of withdrawal syndrome, whether it's mild, moderate, severe, I don't know, but Mm -hmm. it's going, you're going to feel a little different and that's common sense too. But yeah, it's, it's really, really, really complex. And, you know, you could map this on, I think the story of Kratom in the United States is really interesting because you could look at cannabis or alcohol or heroin. You could look at so many different things and ask yourself, is this inherently bad or inherently good? And yeah. it's neither. It's neither. It's uh, it's a substance and people are people and everyone is going to have to kind of make their own value judgments and then the science will play out as it does. Some of the people that have done creative, they'll they'll say, okay, this is terrible. They blame the drug because once they quit the drug, uh, their life got better. And so they say, this is what it does to you. This is what it does to you. This is what it does to you. Yeah. Meanwhile, opiates have done nothing but help me i never abused them when i was got my wisdom teeth out or when i got surgery they helped me it doesn't do that to you 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 and it becomes a kind of like a a preachy thing i've seen exactly what you're talking about but i've also seen there are people with a good amount of self-awareness who have said there were other things going on with me And this is like one of many things I need to work on. So like you kind of have that finger pointing and like blaming what is at the end of the day, a plant that, and and I will say, I do think it's fair to blame certain industry uh, players. The plant is the plant, the industry and advertising and, you know, that is its own thing. But then other people are like, you know what? I had a lot of stuff going on. I already had a history of addiction and I had a lot of, issues emotionally happening and i was relying on this and also covid was really this time around we saw covid impacting people and like people were taking it like a lot more because it's like they just weren't having to go to work and stuff and they were like these conditions all culminated to result in this addiction but they didn't blame kratom they blamed all of these various factors and i think that's closer to like reality Thank you, Dr. Kirsten Smith. I'll be posting that link out of the assessment as soon as she sends it to me. Uh, That'll be on Twitter. Follow us at Kratom Science. I'll also announce it on here. All the links to the studies we mentioned are in the description. Please share this on social media. Like, subscribe, rate, review, comment anywhere you listen to podcasts. The music is Risey. The song is Memories of Thailand. The Kratom Science Podcast is produced by me. Brian Gallagher for KratomScience.com. Take care.